Amen. I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know your pastor and his family, and I'm looking forward. I just met Ethan just a few moments ago. I'm getting, looking forward to getting to know him and, and his son, who's a great singer. Uh, that impressed me, just watching him. You're not impressive, but he is. No, I'm, kid, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, our, my, our son is, uh, is in the ministry. He's a pastor and just uh, was called to a church in Illinois in, in Jan, uh, June. Kind of messed up our plans because I retired in May, and he lived in Florida. He lived out between Tampa and Orlando. So, obviously, we we're going to go and spend a lot of time with our son and, and spend time with our grandchildren and then go tr- do some travel and come back to his house and, and then go travel and come back to his house. And no, no, but then God moved him to Illinois. The good news, the only, only good news of this is three hours away. So now we're actually seeing our grandchildren a lot more. But I thought, could you not have waited Three months, just three months, the summer months. Just give me those months so I could enjoy going to Florida and spending some time. But no. Uh, our daughter, someone asked about our daughter. Our daughter uh, teaches at the University of Texas. She teaches pharmacy at the University of Texas, also works at a children's hospital. So, uh, so our children are, are spread out. And, but this uh, last week, they all came together. One of the first times we've had everyone together because when you have a child in the ministry and you're in the ministry, it's almost impossible to get everybody in the same room. And so this, this was a special time this year. Tonight, if you have a copy of God's Word, look with us to the book of Luke, book of Luke chapter 10. We begin reading verse 25, and, and this is a very familiar story. If you grew up in the church, you know the story, but if you did not grow up in the church, this is one of those few stories that people who know nothing about the Bible at least understand a concept in this passage. Book of Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, bowed up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pray with me. Father in heaven, tonight as we open your word, we pray you'll guide us. Father, we pray you'll help us to understand it. But Father, I pray you'll help us that we will see it in our mind's eyes. 
Father, we'll see what's really going on in this story. That we can understand, Father, what we need to do tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Robert Todd Lincoln was the eldest of Abraham and Mary Lincoln's children, of four children. 17-year-old student at Harvard when the Civil War began. He wanted to join the Union, but his mother refused, much to the embarrassment of Abraham Lincoln and to Robert. He wanted to serve. Now, later on, he did serve. As the war was concluding, they let him serve briefly, so he at least served. But it was always an embarrassment that his mother would not let him serve during the war. It also bothered him all of his life that he wasn't there when his father was assassinated. He was supposed to be there for theater. And not only that, because he was the youngest member of the presidential party, he would have been sitting by the door where John Wilkes Booth would have come in. And all of his life, he told his friends, if I had been there, my father would not have died. If I had been there, my father would not have been killed. I would have stopped John Wilkes Booth. All of his life, it haunted him. But a year before the assassination, Robert Lincoln almost died. It was a freak accident. He was at a train station in Jersey City, New Jersey. He was falling off the track onto an oncoming train when all of a sudden this man came out of the crowd and grabbed him and pulled him back. Not only that, Robert knew who he was. Never met him before, but he knew his face. He was a, he was a very famous actor. He kind of like, if Brad Pitt saved you today. And he called out his name. Edwin Booth. The brother of John Wilkes Booth saved Abraham Lincoln's son a year before he was assassinated. One brother happened to be at the right place at the right time and saved a life of a Lincoln. The other brother planned to be at a place and took the life of a Lincoln. One brother took a life, one brother saved a life. One brother became a hero, the other brother became a villain. I love history. I read a lot of history. And, but I have to admit to you, the first time I read that a few years ago, I didn't see it coming. Did you? Did, did you see that coming? That, that is John Wilkes Booth's brother that saved Lincoln's son? No. Those are the kind of stories we like. We love those kind of stories where you hear it and then you hear something different. You thought, I didn't see it coming. We, we like to watch murder mysteries. And my wife doesn't like watching murder mysteries with me because I will solve them. And I will tell her. I will stop the movie to tell her I figured it out. I'm good at it. I'm not good at many things. I'm good at that. But every now and then, there'll be a, there'll be a movie or a TV show, and we don't know the answer. We, we, something happened, and I was like, I didn't see that coming, and we have to rewind and go back and see what we missed. We love those kind of stories where we didn't see it coming. The parable we read tonight 2,000 years ago, every person in the audience sat up straight and said, I didn't see that coming. Every person that heard this story of our Lord Jesus would have thought, I did not see this coming because what Jesus did was so incredible, so unbelievable, they told everyone the story. Because what Jesus did here is something that no Jewish person had ever done up to the time of the story. The whole story is amazing, even what brought it. Now, again, we 
understand the story. We use the story. We have that phrase, the Good Samaritan. If you are not uh, connected to a church, you understand that phrase, Good Samaritan. In fact, in the last couple of weeks on local news across the United States, over this phrase, Good Samaritan, was used over 5,000 times in local stories. We understand this concept. But it begins in verse 25 with a question. A question about eternal life. And Jesus takes a question about eternal life and he ends up telling a story about a man's kindness applying it to all. Jesus takes a question about eternal life. He tells a story about being a neighbor in order to teach us how to be a servant. Let's look at the story. Look at verse 25. He begins with this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer is putting Jesus to a test. It's kind of a question that people ask at that time period. What must I do to inherit, have eternal life? Now, in, in Jesus' day, that, that phrase eternal life means more than just living forever. That, that phrase means how of life of meaning, being complete. By the way, isn't that what we're looking for today? People are still looking for meaning in life. I'm still talking to people constantly about how can I have meaning. It's the same question this in Jesus' day. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Look what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus takes the lawyer's question. He's trying to test him. He turns it back to the lawyer, and he asks two questions. Remember what I said Monday, uh, Sunday morning? We read the Bible too fast. Did you notice there were two questions? What is in the law? How do you interpret it? The second question is not important. The first question is. The first question is, what's in the law? The second question, how do you interpret it? That makes no difference. You see, we have a culture that says, I read the scripture. This is what it means to me. That's bad theology, folks. What is the Bible? What is it meant at that time? Then that tells me what it means. But this idea that I read the Bible, this, well, this is what it means to me. What Jesus is saying, okay, what does the law say? But what, how do you interpret it? What do you think it means? So he gives an answer. Verse 27 called the Shema. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. By the way, it's very, very important to the Jews. They said this prayer daily, three times a day. It's very important to them. And Jesus responds, verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Jesus says, great, You got it. Now look at verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Don't you notice what's going on here? He says he's trying to justify himself. Jesus has just embarrassed him. Here's how he's embarrassed him. How do I have eternal life? He quotes the Shema. Jesus said, go do this. The lawyer knows it's impossible to do that. The lawyer knows it is impossible to do that constantly. What Jesus has just told the lawyer is impossible. 
He's taken his question, turned it upside down, brought it back to him. He embarrassed the lawyer in front of all the people. And so now the lawyer is going to embarrass Jesus. He said, all right, I'll give you a question. Who is my neighbor? Because in Jesus' day, they argued about this constantly. There were some who said, your neighbor is your family only, connected family. Some would say, it's your village, your, 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 your city. Some would say, oh, it's just the Jewish people. So there was an argument, who is your neighbor? So the lawyer said, all right, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And by the way, whatever answer you give, you're going to insult somebody in this room. The lawyer thinks he's trapped Jesus. And then Jesus does what he does so incredible. He tells a story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was coming down the road, and we saw him, he passed by the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. Jesus said, let me tell you a story. There's a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is above sea level, 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,300 feet below sea level, so you always go down. And by the way, geographically, if you leave Jerusalem, you go down. And so he's going down. Jericho It's 20 miles. It's a winding road. In fact, it has a nickname called the Bloody Way. There are so many robberies on that road. I have been told, I've never been to Israel, I've been told it's still there. It's a bloody way that you still might get robbed at that place. This man is traveling alone from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among thieves. That, that word is where we get pirate from. They ambushed him. They attacked him, leaving, them, leaving him half dead. And then Jesus said, and by chance, just so happened, a priest is coming down the road. And the audience is thinking, oh, oh, obviously, the priest is going to help him. That's what priests do. You pay priests to help. You, you, pray, you pay priests to, to care. That's what they do for us, don't they? They pay us to care. That's, I'm kidding. That's what people think. By chance, this priest comes, and Jesus said he walked on the other side. He didn't help him at all. So let's stop here. Why didn't he stop? Why did this man just keep walking by when there's a man lying there hurt? Well, let's defend him a little bit. Maybe. Maybe it was a professional reason. Because, you see, if the man is dead and the priest touched him, he could not serve for seven days. He's going to Jericho to do something, to do some work. And if I go and I touch that man and I find out he's dead, I cannot do my work in Jericho for seven days. So maybe he's thinking, what is better, one man or a whole town? Maybe this was a professional reason. If I touch him, I, I can't help the poor. I, I, I can't help uh, serve. So maybe I should just walk by. Maybe. It was a cautious reason. This guy could be a decoy. Maybe they're waiting around for me to help. And then they're going to attack me. By the way, a few weeks ago, I don't know if you saw it, on main national news, this girl, teenage girl, was crying for help. A man went to help her, and he was mugged by four people and beaten. He said, I was just trying to help this 16-year-old girl who was crying out in a parking lot. Maybe this guy's saying the same thing. Here, here's a decoy. I better be cautious. Maybe. It was an egotistical reason. <laughs> Maybe it's a prideful. Like, well, it's not my fault. Why should I help? Kind of like Cain said, hey, am I my brother's keeper? I, 
He got in his own mess. I, I don't know who he is. I don't know if he's Jewish. I have no idea who he is. I wouldn't have gotten him out of this mess. And by the way, I know behind me is a Levite. And the Levite's going to stop. So I'm not going to stop if the Levite's going to stop. So I'll just keep going. And he didn't stop. But then the Levite comes. The Levite is a servant of the temple. And he walks by. Why? Same reasons. Maybe, again, egotistical reasons. Well, the priest didn't stop. And if he's not going to stop, why should I stop? So here you have this man on the side of the road, beaten. A priest walks by. A Levite walks by. And then Jesus is going to shock everyone because the audience is expecting this is the a normal pattern of the story. The pattern should have been a priest came by, a Levite came by, the third person was going to be a layman. These are three places in the temple, three categories of the temple. You would have expected the third person is a layman. But Jesus says, someone completely different. Verse 33, but a Samaritan came to where he was. Whoa, <laughs> a Samaritan? You cannot understand. I, I, there's no way I can even explain to any of us how shocking this is for a first century Jewish person. No one, no one in the crowd expected this. For 450 years, the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. Every morning, the Pharisee thanked God that he was not a woman, a Gentile, or a Samaritan. A Gentile could be a proselyte Jew. A Samaritan could not. You could not touch a Samaritan. You could not touch anything belonging to a Samaritan. If you wanted to insult someone 2,000 years ago, you would call them a Samaritan. Remember John chapter 8, verse 48? They called Jesus. Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and a demon? They put Samaritan first because that was a worse insult than calling him a demon. And, and so before this story, before this story, the Samaritans are never presented in a positive light in the Jewish story. So here's the audience. I can tell you what's going on in the audience. Jesus said to a Samaritan, oh, I knew it. They did it. He's the one. He's the one that beat up the guy. He's coming back to, see, to finish the job. That's what they're expecting. Or they're expecting, oh, Samaritan, I know what he's going to do. He's going to go over there. He's going to kick the guy. He's going to spit on the guy. That's what Samaritans do. They are expecting something like that. They are not expecting he's going to help. They could not comprehend this concept that he is going to go help him. It would be like today if we said a Jewish settler and a Palestinian stopped to help. Or, or a black man and a member of the KKK stopped to help. Or Christian Leitner and a Kentucky fan stopped to help, okay? <laughs> now you understand, okay? You would have expected this. But Jesus said this, a Samaritan, verse 33, at his journey, he came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, set him on his own animal, and brought him to the end, took care of him. He took care of him. How did he help? Well, number one, he had compassion. He, he saw him. That's what Jesus said in verse 33. He had compassion. That, that word in the Greek language, anytime you see it, it means more than just emotions. It means to action. Always. It doesn't mean just having pity. It means something in your soul that causes you to react, causing you to do something. 
But this is the word used of Jesus. I mentioned Sunday night where Jesus said he saw and had compassion. And then he did something. It describes an emotion that always leads to action. This man had compassion. By the way, Jesus had compassion for us, didn't he? That's why he came and died on the cross. That's why we are to have compassion because Jesus had compassion for us and we should have compassion for others. But he had compassion. Also, he had contact, verse 34. He went over to him, bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine. That's the medicine of the day. He didn't respond, well, I don't know if he's Samaritan. I don't know if he's Jewish. He didn't care. He made contact. He went over there. He didn't look for obstacles. He just looked for opportunities. Then he gave comfort. Again in verse 34. He set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. To take care of this man, he had to get his hands dirtied and bloodied. He had to pick him up to comfort him. There was a love here. He didn't know this man at all, but he felt love. You can give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. And he saw this man. He had compassion, and he went to comfort him. But something else, he didn't care about the cost. Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He pays his room and board. He says, by the way, if I owe anything else, I'll pay it. Now, for him to take this man to a town, he risked his own life. They would have assumed the Samaritan did it. He took his own life in his hand to take him to the end. The victim had nothing. By law, if the Samaritan did not come back to pay the debt, the victim would become the slave of the innkeeper. The Samaritan paid his debt. It cost the Samaritan time and money and energy. But if you're going to help somebody, it will always cost you. Whenever you help somebody, it's going to cost. And Jesus is saying, when you see someone hurting, you are to be a servant. Take the risk and help. Your neighbor is that person closest to you. You see someone hurting, do something. On this parable, it's an incredible parable. Because Jesus, again, takes a question. He goes to what is a, what is a neighbor, and then he talks about being a servant. Tonight, I'm going to give you some observations on being a servant. So quickly, just observations on being a servant. The first observation is this. Servants do not need a title to serve. Servants do not need a title to serve. I read the story and I realize the priest had a title, but he didn't serve. The Levite had a title, but he didn't serve. The Samaritan had no title, and he served. You do not need a title to serve. And please hear me. I say this as a pastor for many years. Quit waiting on a title to serve. I've served, I've served four churches, again, Sunday night, I'm talking about from a, a rural church, country church, city church, small town church, small church, medium-sized church, large church. I always get the same question in all the churches. Someone will come up to me, and, they, and they'll say something like this. Pastor, 
I want to serve the church. I said, great, do something. No, 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 you don't understand, no. I want to be on a certain committee. I, I, want, to, I want to teach a certain class. I, I want to be a deacon. And I always tell them the same thing. No, you don't want to serve, you want a title. There's a difference. If you want to serve, you don't need a title, just serve. We can find many ways for you to serve. But if you want a title, be honest about it. Just say, I want a title. But don't go after the titles because titles can always be taken away from you. But service can never be taken away from you. One of my, hit, my hit, heroes of history is George Washington. George Washington, I don't think we give him enough credit. He established so many trends that we are still following today. They didn't know how to be a president or whatever, including the, the title president. What are you going to call this person? Well, they had a lot of ideas. Vice President Adams, this is what he wanted to call him. He told George Washington, I want to call you. This is the title we came up with. We want to call the, you the highness, the president of the United States of America, and the protector of liberty. That's what they wanted to call him. His highness, the president of the United States of America, the protector of their liberty. And George Washington said, how about calling me Mr. President? And that's how it got. See, Washington didn't like titles. And so one day he was talking to his officers, the Virginia Regiment, in 1756. That was what he told his officers. He says, quote, remember that it is the action and not the commission that makes the officer. And that there is more expected from him than a title. The whole speech was on, listen, it's about your character, about who you are. That's what makes you an officer, not a title. Quit going after titles. You do not need a title to serve. And we have a generation out there thinking, I need a title so I can do something for God. No, you don't. All you need to do is see the need, like the Good Samaritan, and do it. Third, the second thing, observation. Servants will always see and meet the need. Servants will always see and meet the needs. A servant-minded person doesn't need to be told what to do. They see what to do. They will see that need and they will meet that need. You don't have to give a, a servant a list. Here's what all the things you have to do. No, they very know. The good Samaritan saw the need and he met the need. For, for years at our church in Lone Oak, we had a, a various kind of banquets. You know, you do fellowship for different groups, with Sunday school teachers and, and deacons and Christmas Thanksgiving. But my favorite was something called the Servanthood Banquet. I didn't start it. They, they were doing it before I got there, but I loved it. Here's why. We, we invited people in the church we saw serving. If you, if we saw you serving. Sometimes people serve without anybody knowing about it. And we would invite them. And maybe some teachers and deacons or not, people with no titles, whatever. If we saw people serving, we would invite them. Hey, we want you to come to the servanthood banquet so we can thank you. And that's what we did. A lot of people in the room. The gym, usually packed. We know all these different people serving. Here's what I loved about it. We would have the program, we'd have music, and we would do a motivational talk, and then we'd finish, I'll pray. And then we didn't tell anyone to do this. No one left before everything was cleaned up. All the other banquets, all the other fellowships, people left. And the custodians, and the staff, had to clean up and set up the tables and put them away. The servanthood banquet. And the first week, I, first time it happened, I noticed it. I said amen, 
And everybody got up, cleaned their tables. They worked together, put the tables up. They swept the floor. No one left. We never told them to do that. And then it hit me. That's who they are. Servants do not have to be told what to do. They are going to serve, whether it's cleaning, setting up a table, setting something up, tearing something down, whatever it may be. They see a need. If you're waiting on someone to tell you where to serve, maybe you don't have a servant heart, but, but you need to serve. Cicely Saunders was a British nurse and social worker trained to be a doctor. She discovered in 1950 in England, if you were dying, they would just ask you to leave the hospital. If you were dying, the doctor would come in. Very cruelly, the way they would do this, they would come in and say, there's nothing we can do for you. You need to leave. Cicely Saunders was a new Christian, and she said, this is not right. We need to help these people who are dying. And she was told, well, there's nothing more to be done for them. She said, we've got to find something. And so she began to dedicate her life to figure out how we can help those who are dying. And so she began to research pain control, especially uh, with morphine, trying to figure a way, what can we do to help people? And she had this dream, maybe one day we could have a hospital to, to send people who are dying to give them dignity. And then one day she was reading her Bible, and then Psalm 37, verse 5, Commit thy way unto the Lord, and all trust in him, and it shall bring to pass. And she couldn't get that verse out of her mind. You know, commit thy way to the Lord. Trust in him. And she said, I'm going to do it. And so in 1961, without fanfare, she opened the St. Christopher in London. This was a hospital for people who were dying to come. And they were given dignity. They were taking care of their pain. It was a place where they would come and, and you'd get your hair done or art therapy or your family could come. It was a place to give you Integrity. And Cicely said, you know, no matter who you are, your, your last moment should be important. Her work, by the way, started a new kind of medicine called palliative care, hospice. When euthanasia was sweeping across Europe, she stood up and said, no, that, that's not the answer. Because of her Christian faith, she said, we need to give them dignity. 2005, she died from cancer. In the very hospital she started. But you read her story. She didn't have a title to start that hospital. She didn't have permission to start that hospital. She had a Bible verse. And she saw the need. A servant not just someone who sees the need. They meet the need. And this good Samaritan met the need. Third. Servants will always do more than expected. Servants will always do more than expected. The Good Samaritan did more than you would have expected. You wouldn't have expected him to take him into town. Again, you, the Good Samaritan life was in danger taking him into town. You wouldn't have expected him to pay the hospital, uh, the, the, rent, the bill, the, the hotel. No. But he did more than was expected. By, by the way, you know why? Because that's what God requires. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, And whoever compels you to go one mile, you go two. It's the second mile principle. Now, I have to understand something about this. In Jesus' day, the Romans built these highway systems, 50,000 miles of highway. Some of them still exist. The Roman law said if a Roman soldier was walking down the road, he could make someone carry his bag for one mile. 
So if I'm a Roman soldier, I'm walking down the road, I, I could say to Pastor Greg, hey, carry my bag. One mile. He had to do it. If he said no, at best, he was going to get beat up. At worst, he could be killed. He had to do it. Jewish fathers taught their sons how to know you walked one mile. Because they didn't want you to walk more than one mile. And here's Jesus. Jesus said, look, if someone makes you go one mile, you go the second mile. If your enemy makes you go the first mile, hey, you go to the second mile. Jesus said, I don't want you to just do your duty. I want you to do more than is required. You, you see, we always want to do the least we can. <laughs> like a mother told her little boy, would you have a little bit of spinach? And he said, well, how little can I get by with? <laughs> That's the way we are. How little can I get by with, Jesus? No. He said, go the second mile. You always go the second mile. You give all that you can. You know, probably the best example of this is found in the Old Testament. There's a wonderful story. Genesis chapter 24. After the death of Sarah, Abraham wanted a wife for his son Isaac. He wanted his wife from another, from back his home country. So he tells his servant, he said, I want you to go back to my homeland. I want you to find a wife for Isaac. The Bible says the servant left, took ten camels, going to the back of the homeland. He gets there. He said, how do I find a wife? <laughs> I don't have an app. I don't know how to find a wife. He sits down at a well and he prays. This is a prayer. It's a strange prayer. He, he said, Lord, any woman who asked to, can she water my camels? That's the one. That's a strange prayer. But it was unheard of for a woman to ask, can I water your camels? And then Rebecca comes up. And in verse 19, she says, do you want me to give water to your camels? And then it says, she gave water until, quote, they had finished drinking. Now, again, we read the Bible too fast. Do you know what that just said? He had 10 camels. A thirsty camel drinks 20 to 30 gallons of water. That's 200 to 300 gallons of water. If she had a five-gallon jar, if she had to walk to, to the well, let's just assume it's just a short way, she's going to make 40 to 60 trips. We're talking about two and a half to four hours of her day giving water to camels that she didn't have to do. It's called the Rebecca principle, by the way. She saw the need. She sacrificed for the need, and she met the need. The good Samaritan, he saw the need. He sacrificed to meet the need, and he met the need. Does this sound familiar? What did Jesus do? He saw our need. We have a sin problem. He sacrificed for our need by dying on the cross. And he met our need by having the sins placed upon him, being buried and coming out of the grave. Do you see it? Jesus is telling a story about the Good Samaritan. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. We're the ones lying on the road. We're the ones that are helpless. We're the ones that cannot save ourselves. Jesus comes along. He gives us what we need everything necessary because until you see Jesus as your good Samaritan you'll never be a 
a good Samaritan to others. You will never be a good servant to others. Until you see that it is Jesus who took care of you, you will never be able to take care of others. We're on the side of the road. We can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We, there's nothing we can say before our holy God. And here comes Jesus. He knew that to stop wouldn't just risk his life. He knew it would cost him his life. For Jesus to come. The Bible says, God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The parable of the Good Samaritan is about Jesus. You see how it flows? The lawyer began with the question of eternal life. How can I have eternal life? Jesus ends it by telling a story about the Good Samaritan. He's the Good Samaritan. The only way you can have eternal life is through me. He's standing in front of the lawyer, the one to give eternal life. For those who are here, do you understand that Jesus is the only way you can have life? There's no way you can have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. It's impossible. There is no way you can stand before God and say, God, I'm good enough to go into heaven. None of us are that good. None of us can go before God and say, hey, Lord, we deserve it. We don't deserve it. We go and we stand before God. We have nothing to say except we are guilty. But if you have Jesus, he's the one who speaks for us. By his blood, we are saved. Tonight, have you given your life to Jesus? Tonight, if you stand before God, do you have an answer to him? You can't base it on your goodness. You can't base it on your accomplishments. You can only base it on one thing, Jesus. And he's made it so easy for us. By admitting that we're sinners. By believing that Jesus Christ died on that cross for our sins. Buried on the third day arose. And by confessing. Giving him everything we have. That's how we're saved. Will you give your life tonight? Or maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're a believer, but you aren't a servant yet. You're sitting on the sidelines. You're waiting, to be, waiting on something to happen for you to serve. There's no excuse. I don't care how young you are and I don't care how old you are. There's a place for you to serve in the kingdom of God. Would you stand as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father in heaven, there's, we heard this story so many times, and yet, Father, we somehow miss it. That our Lord Jesus is the good Samaritan. He didn't walk past us. He picked us up and took care of us. And Father, it's possible there's some tonight, they may be thinking, I'm too bad. I've messed up too much. There's no way God can save me. Father, show them that picture of that man lying on the road that's totally helpless. And the good Samaritan picked him up. And Father, when we are totally helpless, our Lord Jesus picks us up. Father, maybe someone here tonight, they're thinking, I'm embarrassed. I know I don't have Christ in my heart, but I've been coming here for years and people think I'm saved. And I don't want them to know I haven't been saved. Father, take away that embarrassment. 
Father, let them realize tonight they can leave this place assured that they will spend eternity with you. Let them not think or worry about what other people are thinking about them. Father, let them be concerned about one thing, what you think. And you are calling them to you. Father, that person who's a believer, and yet, Father, they're not serving. Maybe they want a title. Father, maybe they just want someone to ask them. Open their eyes, Father. Let them have that compassion that, Father, they will see the need and they will work at it. Father, there are many things we could do tonight. But right now, in the next few moments, we ask that our thoughts will be upon you and how we're to respond. Father, for some, it may be responding privately. For others, Father, it's responding publicly. Coming forward to talk to their pastor, to say, Pastor, you can count on me as being a servant. Or, Pastor, I need Jesus tonight. I realize I've been playing a game. I've been pretending. And I'm that man on the road. And I'm helpless. And I need help. And only Jesus can help me, help me, Pastor, as I give my life to Jesus. Father, whatever decisions that need to be made, we ask that, Father, that we make it with you in mind and only you in mind. In Jesus' name, amen.